Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and joining me today, I'm very excited, uh, Dale Farron is here. Um, Dale, what do you want folks to know about you? Some of some of the listeners will be familiar with your name because of that um, NPR story about your Tennessee pre-K study a couple of years ago, but, but what do you want them to know? Well, I mean, it is interesting uh, because I've sort of hidden in the shadows of early childhood education for more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dissertation uh, a long time ago was actually done in an early childhood classroom in Philadelphia, which was trying to do a, a sort of open classroom. And I was interested in how children behaved in that situation. Um, and so a lot of my work uh, has been done in classrooms or uh, in in a variety of settings, but it but this study, uh, which is the only randomized control trial, we'll talk about that yeah uh, later. But uh, it's uh, netted so much attention that <laughs> I've sort of moved into another phase of my yeah. life in my in the last part of my career. Uh huh. Yeah. Um... Well, I'm glad I'm glad of that because I have enjoyed um, reading things that you have uh, written since that since I became familiar with you in that study. So um, can we talk a little bit first? I know I, when I invited you on, I had a specific blog post from Dis- um, Defending the Early Years that I thought maybe could guide the conversation. But can we start by talking about the, the pre-K study in Tennessee and, and what you learned yeah, what we're and, talking and, about in case anyone's not familiar, and just and just for a little background, um, uh, um, and I don't know how far back we want to go, but in in the mid '80s, um, Title One got amended so that school districts, if they wished, could put all their Title One money into into a pre K classroom, mm-hmm. not just resource teachers as it used to be, and at that point. I actually was in North Carolina and organized a group of teachers. We called it the Preschool Initiative Network because we wanted to see, so what what should this look like if it's in the public schools? When we started, uh, like in 1988, there were 18 teachers. By the time we um, sort of closed it down, there were 80 teachers in the same sort of geographic area. I mean, it really grew like topsy. And so... Uh, I think we moved so fast in that direction. We really didn't have a chance to say, well, what what should this be? But I, at that time, 
was concerned about for-profit childcare centers mm -hmm. and and how they might provide less than optimal circumstances for children. And so thought then that, well, if, if the public schools got involved, that would assure some sort of quality. And that was the background toward my colleague and I working with the Tennessee Department of Education in partnership to mount the first randomized control trial. And I, it's important, we, we, we know about randomized control trials like from medicine, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily think about them from social science. But, but Tennessee was implementing in 2000, so we did this work in 2009 and 2010. They were implementing uh, not universal pre-K, but statewide pre-K. Mm -hmm. So there was a pre-K classroom, at least one in every district. And therefore, a lot of them were oversubscribed. I mean, people, parents wanted to come. Oh. To be eligible, you had to meet income requirements or some other requirements like homelessness or something, some mm -hmm. risk requirements. But so everybody who applied was equally eligible. They met the same criteria. Mm -hmm. So it was like you took not just apples to apples, but Macintoshes to Macintoshes. <laughs> and you decided, we decided by flip of a coin, who got in one of the seats and for whom there wasn't room. Hmm. And so we have very equivalent groups that we've been following. Now we're into high school following them, but the data that we released in, uh, the results we released in January of this year were through sixth grade. So we've been comparing almost 3,000 children uh, through uh, the state database, and we've got about uh, 1,700 who went to pre-K and 1,300 who didn't get in. Mm -hmm. So that was the basis for our study. Yeah. And um, uh, if I remember right, the, the results surprised you and, and maybe were hard for you. To work, or not what you we, expected. That's right. When we started, we had we worked we worked with wonderful early childhood people in the state department of and Tennessee's Department of Education, who <laughs> neither of whom were any, there any longer. But nonetheless, they were, and they were you know. And we all had great hopes that what we were going to show was that putting pre K in the public schools was good for children, and. Initially, when we looked at the at the entering scores in kindergarten, it did seem as though pre-K had given children an advantage. Mm -hmm. So the children who went to pre-K scored higher on school readiness type measures. By the end of pre by the end of kindergarten, though, the children who had not been to pre-K caught right up. Mm -hmm. And 60 it's Tennessee's a rural state. And this was in the 2000s, you know, early and early 2010s. So 63% of the children who didn't get into pre-K were cared for by family or neighbors. So they didn't go to any organized okay. program. But by the end of kindergarten, there was no difference between the groups. By the end of third grade, we began to see uh, sort of an alarming trend, which was that the children who had not been to pre-K were looking better on standardized tests. The first 
third grade's the first time they get, you know, statewide uh-huh. tests. By sixth grade, the children who had not been to pre-K were scoring significantly higher on math, reading, and science on the state test. More upsetting to me, even than that, was that the children who had been to pre-K were significantly more likely to be suspended or expelled from school. Mm. So cumulatively, they had more suspensions and expulsions than the children who had not been to pre-K. So those were the data that got a lot of attention. And and, so that my surprise began in third grade. By sixth grade, I had really begun to wrestle with what's, what's, where was I wrong? Mm-hmm. Where were we wrong in thinking about expanding pre-K for very young children? Yeah. Um, so have you, uh, have you gotten pushback on this? Because oh. there's a lot of people who still really think that's the answer, right? <laughs> Especially for lower income families or children. So I ha- I have a a lot of publications that are in the sort of small early, I mean, I mean, they're, they relate to early childhood, you know, over the years, I've published quite a lot. And um, (laughs) once these data came out, I, one person said, so when did Dale stop loving children? Oh no. And another person called us pariahs. So yes, we got a lot of pushback. There's a, you know, the advocates for pre-K, it's like, it's more like a religion. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if you believe, then you'll know why. I mean, they really believe in it and they, and the, but I, I begin, I think Heather, that I think we're beginning, I think there's some creeping up of a realization that perhaps we're not doing the right thing mm. with this our, our approach to right. what we do with young children. Uh, that's great news. <laughs> it is for me. Yeah. I, I was alarmed when in Biden, his first address to Congress said, y- you know, young children, meaning poor children, yeah. need two more years of school. They don't, yeah. don't need care. Yeah, not daycare, school. school. I it's, remember him saying it. Yes. And I thought, no, 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 it's just the opposite. They need care. Yeah. They don't need school. Yeah. Yeah. They'll get school soon enough. <laughs> That's right. Yes, for sure. Um, uh, so, so what I, when my, when I first started emailing you and asking you if you could do this, uh, come on the show, um, I was looking at a blog that you had written for the defending the early years, uh, blog. Um, and it's called early developmental competencies or why pre-K does not have lasting effects. Um, uh, do you have a nutshell answer to the why? <laughs> I want to okay. talk about your iceberg model too, but but first, is there like a summation of? Let's let's think about this. You know, when when um, you're probably maybe too young to remember the kindergarten wars, but but when kindergarten began to be expanded, and in, I think in Indiana it took it a while even to become it's, full day. It's still not required, and yeah, has not been full day for very long. And it's not required in most states. Yeah, because you're not really required to go to school until you're seven. Actually, right. in most states, yeah. but but it might as well be required because mm-hmm. 
that's that's your entry into school. Yeah, um, there was a real concern that kindergarten would not operate like this nice entree entree into you know the K twelve system, but would become like the K twelve system. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened. Yep. I have a, a a colleague whose daughter just went to kindergarten and when they went for a tour in a very good school system, when they went for a tour, she looked up at her mother and said, why are there all grown up stuff in this room? Oh boy. It's all a grown up room because it had desks. It had yeah. no centers, you know, nothing. It's all rows of and, and desks. So we lost that war. Yeah. We'll lose the pre-K war. If we, I mean, I think it's almost impossible to avoid the, the sort of push down from the older grades when you're mm -hmm. in the public schools. And I think those experiences, especially for young, vulnerable children who come from somewhat more disorganized because of poverty mm -hmm. and, the, and chaos in the neighborhood, more disorganized environments, for them to get into these rigid, authoritarian, demanding environments sets them up for negative feelings about school later right. on, which is why I think you see the expulsions and suspensions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, especially thinking about things like long group times or, or long, you know, circle times or being expected to sit very still, those young children, three, four and five-year-olds are already learning. I'm not good at school. Um, instead of learning, you know, being able to fully develop so that they can be good at school when it's appropriate for them to be good at school. I think um, it's so backwards in my mind, the, the way we do that. And then to say that, um, you know, this one income group or these certain characteristics of families mean that they need more of what's not appropriate. <laughs> I, I think it's, I mean, I've come and 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 feel very bad about it for myself i've come to under a late realization that this uh unexamined bias we have which is that children from poor families need a different sort of preparation mm -hmm. for school from children from more affluent families it's a bias it's it's um it's a blaming the victim it's mm -hmm. saying that Basically, the child is not ready, and therefore the child is at fault, and we need to get the child ready. Right. And our idea about getting the child ready is this, as you say, this more didactic, yeah. whole group, what I think of as a training model rather than sure. a real educational model. Yeah, and, and it's the child's fault because it was the parent's fault first, too. We bring those families in um, and lay all kinds of blame for circumstances that are often out of their control. So I've observed in hundreds of classrooms and I have data from hundreds more uh, using a very um, systematic uh, count, behavioral count system that tells you, that really tells you what's going on. It's not a rating. It really gives mm -hmm. you a picture of what's going on. But a part of that is something we called a red flags measure, which is completed at the end of a morning long observation mm -hmm. or, or during it and, and only once it's not a rating. So if you see sarcasm, if you see a negative comments about children, if there are 11 of these items, mm -hmm. if you see 
uh, a physical removal of the child, not sort of a gentle pat, but just a, you know, mm-hmm. a jerking up and yep. putting them down sort of stuff. Anyway, it turns out that about, even in Tulsa, about 50% of the teachers had one or more of these red flags. And the number of red flags that a teacher had predicted much lower scores in um, in um, self-regulation for children. Mm-hmm. And we've actually now shown is actually related to lower achievement scores. Wow. That simple measure. But what's upsetting about that is the fact that we have classrooms where teachers are doing those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing them when they've got an observer there. Right. Who knows what's happening when they're not being watched. Exactly. Yes. I think about that um, when I'm in different classrooms or when I've worked in um, ch- early childhood child care programs. Um, yeah, that's scary and, and, and heartbreaking. Um, so you talk about using an iceberg model. <laughs> um, and I think, I think that visual um, of, you know, what's above the surface, what's below the surface has been used on social media for lots of different um, context, but I feel like it's really, um, you know, just perfect for this conversation. You talk about the ice, the tip being those measurable readiness skills, which tend to focus on numbers and letters and compliance essentially. Right. Um, and then, well, I'll let you talk about it. It's your model. Talk about, talk to us about your iceberg model. You know, it, it, it stemmed from this really, you know, a couple, several years now of trying to wrestle with our findings and, Mm -hmm. and, and come to terms myself with Mm -hmm. what I thought was going on. First of all, it is true that children from higher resourced families enter kindergarten with better scores in things like the alphabet, recognizing letters, recognizing numbers, you know, being able to count. That's true. And what we forget is they didn't learn those skills by sitting in didactic whole group situations. They may have, may have mastered those skills by sitting in front of their refrigerator and moving letter, you know, magnetic letters around or something. But the, the way they learned those skills was embedded in a lot of other experiences. And what we've done with, the, with this pre-K model is we've detached those skills and assumed that by just from the so I, I think of those skills as the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. So they're they're what we can see above the surface, but they actually in in higher resource kids, they they re, they re, they reference much deeper and different kinds of learnings that happen to just manifest themselves in that tip of the iceberg. You can detach that tip and just teach those skills. Mm-hmm. And that does not mean you're teaching and helping children develop any of those underlying skills, such as persistence, curiosity, uh, a deeper understanding of language, mm-hmm. uh, self-regulation. Uh, uh, those are the kinds of skills that are going to carry you further in school because there are only 26 letters of the alphabet. Yeah. So once you've mastered those sort of tip of the iceberg skills, you need those deeper skills to pers- to be successful in learning other matter at later in later grades. Mm-hmm. And I don't 
I'm pretty sure we are not developing those underlying skills in the way we're doing pre-K right now. Right. Right. Um, I mean, so I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge play advocate. That's, that's, um, where I am now. I, I definitely in my early career did a lot of this circle time, um, focus on letter, you know, the kinds of, uh, kind of more measurable stuff. But as I've gone further, I now I haven't been in direct care for a couple of years, but when I, my last preschool that I worked in, it was essentially play based and um, with a well thought out intentional environment. And, you know, we read stories together, but anyway, um, I, I feel like that is hard for some people because of those outside pressures, like school readiness, parents want it, kindergarten teachers, you know, I don't want them to complain about the kids who come from my center uh, not being ready or whatever. Um, so I feel like it's a really difficult battle to move in the direction of those below the surface things that maybe are developed better through more play and, uh, more child directed kinds of experiences. I know that there are some people who are trying hard to push back on that. Yeah. Uh, but I was really so discouraged by the direction that California went, for example, mm -hmm. in putting in this new pre-K program they're going to have to replace their TK program. It's just yeah, it, it's it has all it has all the elements of what we know does don't work. I mean, they're insisting that the teachers all be licensed and certified. Heather, we have three very large studies that are quite rigorous and demonstrate that teacher credentials of those kind of credentials make no right. difference to quality or child outcomes. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's because we I mean, we can. I don't want to go too far afield, but <laughs> we don't have good teacher preparation programs right. for this for this age child. Mm -hmm. And if you get teachers who are certified nursery school through grade four, guess where the bulk of their training is right. taking place, right? Yep. And and they have they know very little about the sort of wildly different kind of characteristics of four year olds, right? Sort of what they know and what they, how they're making sense of the world is so idiosyncratic. I'm just yeah. think about your own children. I mean, they, you know, that they, you know, you take delight in the, in the kind of craziness they're making sense, trying, as they trying to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I'm not sure we've got enough strength yet in our opposition yeah. to prevent states from enacting things that we know are just not going to be good for kids. Right. Yeah, well, it, there's just so much more power coming from, um, you know, whether it's the Department of Education in your state right. or whoever's setting those those standards. Even when they try to set early childhood standards, I feel like instead of looking at each age and what's a priority and what 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 they're already competent in and deciding here's what we should try and offer, we look at okay, kindergarten needs this, so then five year olds need letter drilling or you know four-year-olds need letter drilling we work it from a deficit model i guess is what i'm trying to say instead of uh, well and, and we work it from a very concrete skills basis yeah. and it's true you know the the early childhood research field has not 
serviced the practice feel very well. Mm -hmm. We haven't provided good measures of those kinds of skills. So that, that a program that wanted to say, hey, we're making a difference in persistence and curiosity and critical thinking can show that, you mm -hmm. know, because, because what you show is how many letters your children. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the other side of it too, is at least in, in many States, the, the qualifications to work with early childhood programs or settings are so uneven. There's, there's lots of places that don't require any, um, formal training, formal education. So, so people go in and model their practice on their own school memories uh, because they haven't been offered any other kind of alternative. Well, see, this is, if, if, if I ran the world in, in California, yeah, they didn't ask me to, <laughs> I would have taken all that money and I would have put it into early childhood care. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because, and I would have put salary supplements in for teachers. I would yeah. have made sure that, that all teaching staff have health benefits and retirement benefits, because mm -hmm. that's like a golden handcuff that keeps you in your jobs, yes. you know? So I would have put supplements in particular ways to the early childhood um, non-existent system mm -hmm. so that I could stabilize it to some extent and stabilize staff yeah. and, and uh, make, make things available and affordable to children, to parents, because programs that pay their faculty, their staff well, mm -hmm. are affordable only to the very wealthy who do choose them. Yeah. You know, so we, we, it, so there's so much work that needs to be done in early in, in the, in care for children before school entry. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's such a mishmash of, you know, programs and uh, anyway, any, there's, there's money out there yeah. to be integrated. Yeah. One of the things that is disappointing to me and, and frustrating as a, as a college uh, instructor is that even, you know, even NACI's professional development standards that they have for, you know, what what people what skills people need to be able to demonstrate to prove that they're ready to go out and work with young children don't mention care at all um and and play mm, lip service but most of it is content and and sort of didactic um uh you know academic kinds of focuses and and they don't even use the word care in their um right. in their standards and that's that's tricky um, oh, wait, I was looking to see what I'd highlighted in here and you already have hit, <laughs> hit a couple of them. So let me just, uh, work through here again. Um, can we, can we talk about Nordic countries a little bit? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because so. I'm a huge fan of Finland and Sweden, what I know of their, their approaches to early childhood. Um, and if I'm, mention that I get you know well there that's a whole different country that's not how we do things here but maybe we should do things that way here it's not how we do things here yeah. that's for sure I I have uh close colleagues in in Sweden and I spent a fair amount of time in Sweden mm -hmm. uh, and so um it, it's interesting the last time I was there uh I was actually being given an honorary degree and so I was you know was 
I was speaking more publicly mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, a, re uh, a reporter came up to talk to me and she said, well, you know, Sweden is not doing as well in the international comp uh, comparisons now of achievement. Mm. I think OEC does, OECD does in like fourth grade or PISA, the PISA, PISA. things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, but they're later, they're like fourth, you know, eighth yeah. grade, whatever. And she said, don't you think we should have pre-K? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> don't you think we should have, don't you think we should make our preschool experiences more academic? Uh -huh. I said, no, I think you should look at your early grades to see what's happening in, you know, in your first through, through third grade to uh -huh. see, you know, what, what sort of instruction is happening there that perhaps is not sufficiently deep enough to yield you the store the, the scores you want later on uh -huh. but why would you assume again it's a blame the child thing why would you assume that the reason your scores on PISA mm -hmm. you know age 13 are not as good as you want them is because the kids weren't prepared enough to come to school when they yeah. were five or six. we put so much on the shoulders of three, four, and five-year-olds and not enough on the shoulders of grown adults who have right. chosen the work. Right. Um, it's, but I, but I had, <laughs> so I, I spent in the winter, uh, some couple of years ago, I was in Sweden uh, at a separate time. And uh, so I spent the day in a, in a preschool classroom mm -hmm. in a preschool setting. And <laughs> it's the winter. Mm -hmm. So they in had Sweden. <laughs> in Sweden. So they had these huge instead of cubbies, they're like hall trees. Do you know what uh -huh. those are? Like, you yeah. know, they, so they have sections on them and and kids come in and they take off their boots and they take off their rubber this and they take uh -huh. off their hats and then they take off their balaclavas and then uh -huh. they take off their clubs, gloves, <laughs> and then they, and they have places to hang all those things. And it yeah. takes about 30 minutes to get yeah. all that stuff off. Sure. They go in their room and they're about they're in the room and they're doing art activities and various things for about 45 minutes to an hour. And then they come back out, put all that stuff back on again. <laughs> takes another half hour. Yeah. And they go outside and they take neighborhood walks. Uh -huh. It was just so different. Yeah. So different. I, we, we observed classrooms in Memphis, Tennessee, which is not Sweden. Right. Um, and a uh, half of these classes, the children were in school seven hours a day uh -huh. and half of the classrooms never went outside and never went to an indoor gym. Oh boy. And when we said something to the teachers about why, and they said, it's too cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me introduce you to Sweden. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know. It's so funny to see different people's interpretation of quote unquote bad weather. I, um, we're originally from Nebraska and we moved here when our kids were young and, um, to Indiana sent our kids to the bus stop one morning and the neighbor called and said, there's no school today. And we were looking out the window, like what, why there were maybe four inches of snow out there or something. And I was like, all right, send them back home then. I guess. <laughs> Um, but oh, so, the Swedes but that, say the Nordic, <laughs> the, the Nords, Nordic countries, they say there's no such thing as bad weather, yes. only bad clothing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the, my first introductions to the way things are different for in Nordic countries was I read a book called, there's no such thing as bad weather by, um, Linda 
oh, McGurk, McGurk, something. Anyway, yeah. So that was where I first heard that and learned that phrase. Um, but this brings into into question then um, just movement in general. We we're taking that more and more away from children too I... when we expect you know, we're focused on didactic teaching and, and drilling and, and memorization. Where's the, where's the opportunity to do all the movement that we have all this brain development now to tell us that is, you know, crucial to, to how our brains develop and grow and, and how we do the, the under the surface things that we're going to need for the self-regulation and the, um, in fact, there was the a recent skills. study um, that showed that time outside, particularly unstructured time outside, not time uh -huh. outside where you're, you have to play Red Rover, Red Rover, yeah. but you can actually, you know, and, and of course, if you left it up to me, it would be time outside where you actually get to be in nature and not yeah. on a concrete playground right. set of equipment. Mm -hmm. um, that time outside was linked to much better gains in self-regulation Mm -hmm. And they, the authors made the point that in part, you regulate yourself running around outside and doing things and constant and learning to concentrate and stick with something and then move on to something else. Right. And you also bump up against other children and you learn to sort of have, you have to work as part of the group yeah. instead of by yourself. And, and even though these children are in with 20, 19 other children, there are 20 children in a classroom they're all treated as individuals. There's very little time from our data. Uh -huh. We see there's very little time where the children are actually in associative interactions. Right. They're either alone or they're in this group where they're supposed to sit by themselves and pretend the other children aren't there. Right. Don't touch. Don't talk. Don't. Exactly. Uh, Crisscross applesauce. Yes. Oh, brother. Crisscross applesauce. That's something people hold tight to, right? They do not want you to say... That's not the best way to expect children <laughs> to, to participate in your group. Um, it's so ingrained well, in I what we're to, doing. So I'll have to be positive. Yeah. I was in one classroom in, in rural Tennessee some time ago. And and it was center time. They had, they, and, and it was a very good center time. Mm -hmm. And often there are huge transitions between things. And the more transitions there are, the lengthier the transitions between activities and the more of them there are the more negative and behavior control you see oh sure a part of teachers it makes sense mm -hmm. it, so these children got from the end of centers to whole group book reading I, in a blink of an eye I couldn't even exactly see how they did it and yeah. I was like what wait a minute what happened and part of it was they didn't have to sit on a number. They were all clumped up together. They were very interested in what book she was going to read. And they were all sort of leaning against each other and yeah. getting close and trying to, and it was such a, a warm, positive group experience that they were very happy to leave centers and come do that. And yeah. hardly had a transition at all. It was yeah. wonderful. I love that image. I, that's very much the way I would do story time uh is they can sit where they want they can be on their tummies they can lay on their back if they need to they can sit by their friend however that works but there I had one little boy it was a group of four and five-year-olds and um he was like so and so's too close to me so and so's too close to me and I said well you could move and he went what 
like, I didn't know I could, you know, so he was just so sort of used to being told, stay in your spot and don't move. Yeah. When we're doing stories that that was so foreign. Um, what else? I, I feel like, um, I feel like we've covered a lot. I've really enjoyed listening to, to you talk, but is there anything you would add as like a parting idea or? Um, the, the, the National, um, uh, wait a minute, uh, Council of State Legislators actually has a new, had a new, uh, has endorsed a new um, report that's international mm-hmm. and their endorsement, which just came out a couple of months ago. Now these are state legislators. Yeah. Said the, the heading was the time is now. And they were talking about it's time to rethink American education, to reimagine what we're doing because it's not working. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of uh, press behind getting change that I'd love to see. I don't know what will happen, if anything, from that. Yeah, but yeah. I thought, isn't that marvelous? If there are, if if a national council of state legislators is going to say we, and that's nationwide, we mm-hmm. need to address these issues that our system, uh, the way we're doing education right now for children, is not working well for them. Right. And 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 they did they looked at international comparisons and said, you know, trying to adopt. Well, the report anyway tries to um, recommend things that are much more like you and I would be interested in from Nordic countries. And mm-hmm. so so maybe maybe. But my problem, I don't want to leave on a, such a negative note. My <laughs> concern is we may be sacrificing a lot of children while we learn that we've got it while we figure it out yeah i think that's true um but there's i mean there's hopeful spots everywhere there's there's good stories and people who are willing to uh be fierce advocates to be on the side of the child and their families um so i i have to think i have a coffee mug that says idealist like it's just a giant mug and i get teased about it a lot it's like I have to be like right I'm not gonna say um that we can't fix or change anything I have to be this idealist I'm sorry I don't understand the the fierce pre-k advocates who can't turn their fierce determination over toward fixing our early childhood care system right I don't I don't know why we continue to have opposition Mm -hmm. to quote child care Right. It, and saying things like families raise children, you know, that's, you know, this is, this is socialist to have childcare. Yeah. And yet we're willing to put all this money into expanding the public school system, yeah. you know, for yeah. into pre-K. I, yeah. It, it, it seems schizophrenic to me. Right. I mean, right. I think a lot of it is teacher ego and teacher, their need to be identified as a teacher and not recognizing what that you could still be a teacher. It just looks different. You know, exactly. that's a whole other episode too. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. This was, um, this was really great. And um, I know folks are going to enjoy having, uh, having you on the show for this episode. So, well, so it thank was you. really fun. I, yeah. I like talking to you. Thank Good. you so much for asking me. Come back anytime. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> whenever, whenever you've got something you want to get out.
talk about, okay. you just let me know. That's a deal. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dale. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.